I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the program. This week, the hedgehog and the fox venture out into that time of day that the French call between the dog and the wolf. In other words, in the fading light of dusk. The transitional time that's no longer day, but not yet night. To some bringing peace, to others care, as a French poet Baudelaire put it. Our guide to this twilight world is Peter Davidson. It's a mode of feeling, he says, as well as a natural phenomenon. It's certainly a mode that greatly appealed to many 19th and 20th century painters and writers. The melancholy of dusk seemed to resonate with their own feelings about their era. Think of the lonely figures haunting the gloaming in Atkinson Grimshaw's paintings, or the golden sky in the evening star by Caspar David Friedrich, which manages to be both beautiful but also unsettling. Dusk captured the imagination of a host of writers too, Tennyson, Hardy, Houseman, Walter de la Mer, and think of the pervasive gloom of Dickens' bleak house or recall T.S. Eliot's preludes. The winter evening settles down with smell of steaks in passageways, six o'clock, the burnt-out ends of smoky days, and then the lighting of the lamps. Peter Davidson is a senior research fellow and archivist at Campion Hall in Oxford. His background is both Scottish and Anglo-Spanish, and his interests are wide-ranging, embracing landscape, literature, art and architecture. As you'll hear, his most recent book, The Last of the Light, about twilight, in a sense grew out of his previous one, The Idea of the North. The twilight, he writes, is a particular obsession of the north of Europe. More personally, he says, some lives are defined by mornings, some by evenings, mine unequivocally the latter. When we met, appropriately enough, in the gathering dusk of an Oxford autumn evening, I asked him to tell me more. I thought of myself as a person who essentially pertained to the evening because the rhythms of my day are absolutely indestructibly Spanish. And, you know, I cannot get up at six in the morning and and go for a run. I just, I cannot do it. I cannot eat my dinner before eight o'clock at night, if then. Yes, I think of myself as someone who pertains more to the second half of the day than the first. I do actually wake up more early these days than I used to, but I, I have a sense when I 
if I go for a little walk after breakfast, I, I have a sense that a whole life has taken place with people rowing and running and doing things that you do in, in the early hours of the morning. But no, I, I like I like five o'clock to dinner time very, very much. Um, you quite often go to church. I, I mean, I go to Mass if there is a Mass here, or I'll go to Evensong at Christchurch or Magdalen. And I, I love that time of day, and if it gets dark while I'm at church, well, that's, that sort of helps. I mean, that's, that's, that's lovely. I was at Ampleforth, and I was staying, I was staying in the Abbey for a bit in the summer, and I, I very much liked the night office and the sense of closing the fortress and sort of settling everything down for the night, and I, we sort of like the idea they've been saying the same words for such a very long time at the same time of day. Yeah, but I, I used to feel belatedness that I'd... I think this was a product of not listening to my father, who was a sensible person, but listening to my mother, who wasn't. And like a lot of, well, somewhat privileged Anglo-Spaniards, she felt that for people like her the good days had gone and it was all terrible and you know, I was a little barbarian from the New World, not really you know, sort of part of civilization as she defined it, um, rather than my perfectly sort of cheerful and optimistic father. And, you know, for a long... It's very easy to convince children of virtually anything. And so for a long time I carried around an unexamined assumption that, you know, it was too late to do anything about anything. Which, of course, was rubbish, as I have come to think increasingly in the last ten years. And there's plenty of time to do a lot about a lot. But, I, I mean, I get more cheerful as time goes on. It happens. Well, that's, that's good, because so often it's the, it's, the, it's the obverse, isn't it? And are you more productive in the evenings? Because sometimes people work into the evenings as a kind of manifestation of anxiety at not having achieved during the day the goals they had set out for themselves. Well, but you know, whoever achieved during a day the goals they had set? Or even come close. Or even come close, exactly. Um, <laughs> but it sounds like you've reached a state of equanimity with your sort of evening yes. Re- regime. Yes, no, I mean, what I, I really love doing is... I, I do some admin in the morning. I very much like sort of having lunch with people if I possibly can and then then I I, I take the dog for a walk in the afternoon and I try and do most of my teaching in the afternoon because it's a time when it just seems to suit everybody when morning people and evening people are are both reasonably reasonably sort of focused and cheerful but now what is really good is is I like the sort of regularity of Oxford life to some extent that you know most people have dinner at quarter past seven though I Myself, actually quite like having dinner late, but one thing you get if you do have dinner at quarter past seven is you get this lovely long evening when you can write through to about past ten. And very often it's very quiet. People don't ring you because they think it would be intrusive. And it's sort of wonderful. And yes, everything's kind of settled down and... And you've got a bit of bit of peace to think about things, and also you can sort of pull the day together. I mean, I try and do that if I go to church just before dinner. I, I, I try and pull the day together and think about how it's gone and what I could have done better. But the evening is... The evening's wonderful. I find the evening's wonderful for writing. And there's a sort of golden half hour at the ten to half past ten where... If I'm going to have an idea, or as I please to think of them ideas, they tend to come about that time. And then, then I sort of 
read a detective story and then go to bed. <laughs> so, and perhaps an obvious question, but did the idea for this book come to you in the evening? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I No, it was, it was a very snowy afternoon, actually, in Aberdeenshire, and I was rather frantically writing the end of the idea of North, which had turned from being a sort of quite sort of solemn cultural history book into something that I, I completely lost control of. I mean, I'm, I'm very bad at... I'm really bad at sort of knowing what I want to do and doing it with, with what I'm writing. So this book had turned into a sort of memoir and I'd started telling people about my friend's dreams and it just sort of got so odd that I thought, well, it might as well go on being odd. You know, it's not going to, it's not going, we're not going to rest this back to being a conventional cultural history now, so we might as well make it whatever it wants to be. And it want, then the last bit wanted to be about the experience of sitting in a very remote house, watching it getting dark over fields of snow on the shortest day of the year. So I was, it was the shortest day of the year, and there I was, having more or less finished the book. And so I, I said, right, I will write 1,000 words about it getting dark on the shortest day of the year. And I got so completely fascinated by the process of it getting dark and started thinking of all the people who had painted very late light wonderfully and really sort of ended up mentioning James Pride. I mean, writing about sort of Scottish painters, I think, but the person I meant was James Pride, the way that he just gets that sort of flick of falling light on the edge of a gilded frame or something. I'm thinking of those paintings of the great bed. And... Um, Yes, so the next book was all sort of done by the time I'd finished the North book. And it's actually all the ideas that are in the Twilight book really were there in the last couple of pages of the North book. Twilight seems to be everywhere. Once I'd read your book, I, I couldn't stop finding instances of people writing or painting or describing Twilight. It seems, it seems omnipresent. I mean, were, were you surprised by how much you found or were you already so well acquainted with it you just had to gather it up and give it some order. I, know, I was surprised by how much I found because there was just so much more than I thought there could possibly be. There's whole tracts I left out. I was struggling to some degree because I wanted to see how far back it went chronologically. And I think the answer is probably, apart from a few unusual Low Countries painters... Michiel Sverts and a few people like that who really did kind of specialise, Van Nair, who specialised in, 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 in kind of climate and season in a rather precocious, anticipatory way. People can't usually see twilight until the end of the 18th century. And actually what they paint as twilight is actually a twilight sky in the distance but whoever's at the front of the painting is lit by theatrical lighting. I mean, that's the case with all of William Dobson's, I mean, rather wonderful lamenting portraits of the Royalist officers. They've all got these terrific stormy winter skies with the light just going and a very red sunset behind them. But actually they themselves are lit by a sort of level top left light, which is I mean, kind of theatrical. And if you look at paintings of night scenes in Venice Preserved or whatever, they're always lit by this fictive light. De Luther Burke's Philosopher in a Churchyard, fictive light from the left. Illustrations to Horace Walpole, fictive light from the left. But actually getting 
somebody painted contrajour against a verisimilitudinous twilight. I think Michel Sviets is the first person who really wanted to do it and did it. He's an interesting painter, he's sort of odd painter. You do get mosaics in the basilicas in Rome which have wonderful night clouds, but the whole scene that they show isn't inflected by the light because there's a kind of golden golden sky and everything is, is glimmering. It's interesting they thought of it. So, I think the answer is 18th century. I run a completely specious argument in the book that the invention of bright domestic lighting has something to do with people starting to notice the quality of light outside the windows. I think also, very simply, the way that the upheavals of the third quarter of the 18th century made travel difficult, that a lot of people in the north actually are rather constrained to make a virtue of necessity and start looking around them at where they are. I know holidays in the Lake District and picturesque tours to some degree are a byproduct of the Grand Tour being off limits because, well, you can't easily get to the south anymore. So there's an attentiveness to northern light coming in. And the 19th century, you know, accepting what you said about the 18th century, but the 19th century seems to really be the era par excellence of the golden age, if you'll pardon the, the crass pun, of depicting the twilight. And you get this extraordinary summer of 1805, where purely by coincidence, Cotman's painting some of his best pictures of, of daytime twilight as well as evening twilight, because he, he paints most wonderfully sort of little bits of water under very heavy shadow and deep into the recesses of wood and things like that. You're getting, I mean, that is also a year when some of Friedrich, I'm not sure if he was in Dresden by then, I, I think he may still have been studying, I'm not sure. Um, I think he was in Dresden by 1805, but he's painting a lot of evenings and you start getting all those wonderful poems and songs about the traveller at the gate of the city, at the door of the house at evening. Then it comes in a flood. And then I, I think you get a fascinating set of urban twilight pictures with the combination of gaslight and heavy pollution. And that would probably run from, I mean, not a very good painter like Grimshaw. I mean, poetic and interesting, and when it works, it works, but not a very interesting painter. I mean, that would run from his work, which certainly observes quite literally polluted industrial pollution in the sky. But I think that runs through to some quite important French painters. It's a phenomenon Ruskin notices, and it's a phenomenon that Jared Hopkins noticed when he was sort of senior schoolmaster, I mean, teaching more like a junior university form in Lancashire. That's in the late 1870s. And something that, I mean, I feel is rather unfinished business is I haven't quite got to the bottom of his scientific affinities in those years. And I go to Stonyhouse quite a lot because I work on the collection there. And I keep meaning to follow up that sort of train of the scientific activity, the observatory, and the fact that the observatory is making weather records and that the observatory seems to have some of that dawning sense that carbon in the atmosphere is something to do with what's happening. I mean, that, of course, is something that Ruskin goes on about a lot in a rather sort of 
vehement way because he's not at all well by the end of the 70s. But actually he was quite right. I mean, he was observing a change in the sky. He wasn't making it up. I think something that confused people greatly was that they knew scientifically that Krakatoa had affected the weather worldwide and that the beginning of a, of a perception of a pattern of climate change was, you know, interference runs across that. I'm so interested in the way that science at that point has to turn to the language of poetry as we think of it because trying to be precise with words. Hopkins' descriptions of the evening skies that follow Krakatoa are really wonderful. I mean, they keep falling into meter. I, I think he can't stop them. I mean, his colour observation is always good, but his colour observation there is simply spectacular. Hopkins and Ruskin, you quote, as you just said, astonishing descriptions of twilight skies, really sort of wrestling with trying to describe it it's a reminder i suppose that 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 apart from watercolor there, there was you know there was no other way to quickly render a, a twilight sky one of the interesting asides really that i took from your book is that photography hasn't ever really until quite recently yeah. been been very comfortable with or even able technically able to render twilight and and cinema still yeah. doesn't doesn't really in, indulge very much in it because it's too it's too ambiguous really yeah i mean it's i believe it it is becoming much much more possible to do twilight with with cinema now but really for a very long time photography couldn't partly because of a really sort of odd thing that what you see isn't quite what you think you see anyhow and that a photograph of a, an evening sky actually comes out with the colour values slightly different from the way you perceive them if you're a human watching it change um, and so you don't always recognise a photograph of, the, of an evening sky I mean I think the thing that is really interesting about that is though photography and cinematography are becoming more able to film in low light the thing is that because your eye makes so many quite subtle compensations that actually a really good photograph of a sort of late evening sky won't look quite right because it's not what you remember seeing even though it may be objectively what was there which I find very interesting and in an odd way there is simply a moment of absence of photons where I think the camera gives up and where those few painters who paint really deep into the into the into the dusk. I mean, I suppose Friedrich, that very late seashore in in Hamburg, that's very late. I mean, it's almost night, and then Victoria Crow, living painter, wonderful painter. She really, she has a particular set of, I mean, a really good group of paintings, which are about the last moment where you can perceive cobalt or a sort of cobalt turquoise green, as opposed to just blackness. You know, the last moment the human eye will take in, and she's done some lovely things with that. I mean, James Pride again, I mean, some of his paintings, which must have looked quite strange in the, in the first quarter of the 20th century, where you have a room with the lights so low, there are only a few details picked out and that he just goes with representing what would have been seen 
and he sometimes represents a scene in a lower light than I, I can almost any other painter I can think of till quite recently. But he's he's a very odd and fascinating painter. It's a rather broad brush question, Peter, but is the prevailing mood of, of 19th century twilight one of of sadness and anxiety and disquiet and disturbance? And if so, what do you think is feeding that? All of the above. Um, well, Arnold says in Dover Beach that what's feeding it is uncertainty, that you have had until comparatively recently within a generation a sort of comprehensible way of being human whether it's good or bad or not is not the question but you have had a way of being human and you don't travel very far unless you're very privileged and there are certain certainties and then through the course I suppose of a life that spanned the middle of the 19th century most of those certainties aren't there anymore I'm also very worried by the whole sort of historicism of the mid-19th century, as though there is no style left one can work in, that one has to one has to work in the style of, you know, you have to wear dead people's clothes. And I actually find that very odd and very disturbing. I keep trying to think of sort of society that didn't do that, and I can't, and it bothers me. Because I, I, I do find all those sort of retrospections are of their nature intrinsically very sad. I mean, those, I find Pugin desperately melancholy. I mean, I think you were supposed to find it quite sort of invigorating and medieval, you know, medieval liveliness, those, those very polychromed buildings. But, but actually they're so sad. Yes, I mean, I, I think the, the sort of most twilight evening I ever spent, I went with my friend Alan, who's an architectural historian once, to look at All Saints Jesus Lane in Cambridge, which is a very, very fine high Victorian church. I can't remember who it's by. But it's very polychromed inside. And we went on a sort of foggy November evening, and it was getting dark while we were there. A very nice man who showed us around. But, you know, the damp England, the sort of the damp was coming up through the floorboards and not floorboards flagstones floorboards would have been better and the polychrome was sort of coming off the walls and there were fruiting bodies and i'm sure the church is all sort of restored and all right now but i thought that was i mean somehow the building expressing the kind of sadness of victorian england but but i'm not english so i'm not sure i know (laughs) and electric light doesn't entirely dispel this even even post-Victorian sense of melancholy, you you write about one of the most memorable things about the book, I think, for me, was how you weave in your own undergraduate days in 1970s damp Fenland and your your sort of explorations. And it, they all seem to occur at twilight in the autumn. It was and so rubbish getting ourselves on the road. I mean, well, you you had a car. I was slightly <laughs> envious of that in the nineteen seventies. But you say you say that the nineteen seventies you think was the last decade of that sensibility of twilight. It was just it was just. But so it lasted a long time. Well, I don't know if it was. I was just actually talking to my best friend from university last night, and I 
can't remember if it was just us or if it was everybody. I said, you know, were we the only people who knew about these sort of interwar artists in those days? Because it seems as though we were. I mean, my friend's very eminent art historian. I mean, rather led the revival of English modern. I mean, not rather led, led in some ways. And um, he said, no, I don't think we were. I mean, we, we, we carried on our parents' taste rather than rebelling against it. But I think that we were still just in a... I think we were just in a continuum. A lot of the years we were being brought up were still older cultivated people's tastes for pre-war. I think we were, to some degree, directly influenced by the fact that the county guidebooks were still in print. There was something wonderfully melancholy about the fact that the series wasn't finished. That just seemed yes, the perfect the perfect thing that the series hadn't had sort of petered out. Yes, I mean the you know, the thought that sort of cultivated people would want a list of all all the sort of churches and views and those things that cultivated in a sort of interwar sense people might want to go and see. The idea that sometime in the 1970s a publisher decided this is just not selling, so let's just cancel the contract for Yorkshire. And I think Yorkshire was going to be the next one. I think they ended with Rockland. But I mean, those books were written with knowledge. They were very much involving a revival of a revival because they came out of the Piper Circle, so they... They came out of the revival of the early 19th century picturesque. But they were actually rather good. And we did go and look at an awful lot. I think once, first of all, the great wave of repair and restoration of historic buildings in in the 1980s, but also there's a lot of new build, not all of it bad. And there's a different different spirit. We weren't feeling we were the end of anything in a sort of tragic way at all but I just suddenly thought in retrospect actually we were brought up in a curious way to see the England of the shell guides and of deeply deeply unfashionable things like Rex Whistler's drawings and that those in a sense are governed by writers who've slipped out of the canon. I mean, I think a lot of what Whistler sees is through the eyes of Delamere. Then that went together with the sense of the local. Though that's kind of coming back with common ground and good people like Tim D, but I think that there's a different sense of the local. It's quite interesting because I've lived through both of those. I've, I've lived through sort of being slightly old-fashioned students from slightly old-fashioned families and going using shell guides and trying to get a visual education. And then I think there was a while where you probably... I mean, if you wrote about the English countryside, you were defining yourself as rather backward-looking and retarded and probably not politically very progressive. And then all these sort of people have come now who write absolutely wonderfully about nature and landscape and it all seems to be alive again, which is terrific. It's extraordinary. It's all it's all sort of woken up again because I think very sort of a lot of people a lot of people walking themselves. And a lot of people just taking a lot of pleasure in observing. And I think that people who help people to see the way that painters help you to see can be doing them a great service.
I've always been rather pleased that things have come round so that you can write about place and nature in a in a sort of pro- not just sort of progressive way, but in a way that'll enrich people and that people seem to like. We talked about that nineteenth century sense of anxiety that accompanies the dusk. You quote William Maxwell, the American writer. I think he's writing a letter or a journal entry from Ireland. And he's surprised by the long, slow, lingering twilight. And he talks about all that's been lost being given back. And I wonder, is that, is that a sense that you also recognise? Is that the sort of other side of the medal? He is absolutely wonderful. I mean, he is one of the, he is one of the underrated, I think. I, I, think they, I think they're reading him again in America now. Editor of The New Yorker wonderful correspondence with Sylvia Townsend Warner, herself an absolutely wonderful letter writer. But I think what he means, I was talking to one of my colleagues about this last night, is that America is much further south than you think. I mean, you think because you think of snowy New England, it's way north, and it's sort of not. I mean, even quite a lot of Canada isn't as north as you'd think it is. And so I think for William Maxwell, coming from, broadly speaking, just outside New York, where he, where he lived, like he lived rural New York State somewhere, coming from there to Ireland is actually going quite a long way north. And Irish summer, there's a very long twilight compared to a New York twilight. And I think what he says in the sense of things being given back to him, a lovely phrase, is that it is like the Europe of fairy tale and that there is a long period of between time between the dog and the wolf, and that that long half-light is something he's only realised was a real thing, not just something that was in fantasies. And the softening and the blurring and the gradual shift of colour and withdrawal of colour. I mean, I guess that's, that's, why we, that's why we love it, isn't it? It's not, if it only produced anxiety in us, then, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have been having such an interesting conversation. It's that, it's the, it's that other side that, that we can sort of take pleasure in the slow withdrawal of the light. Oh, yes, but it depends how you feel about your own death. Doesn't it? Because if you aren't prepared to contemplate your own death, it's going to make you very anxious, the light going. I write about that at the end of the book. Um, it's actually somebody had the Four Last Songs, Richard Strauss's Four Last Songs, just playing cheerfully in one of the offices here today. I, I loved that. It was the one about the very last light, and it's all right, really. Yes, it was so nice that we, we asked her to leave her door open so we could listen to the end of it. It was, it was wonderful. All I have to say on the subject. I was talking to Peter Davidson about his book, The Last of the Light, about twilight. It's published by Reaction Books. You can find out more about it on their website. If you've enjoyed this programme, visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for other interviews in the series. You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed, and even leave a review. Until next time... Thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.